Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. You're about to listen to episode five of Trailblazers and our esteemed guest this time is the legendary A&R man, Mike Pickering. Ah, Mike Pickering, tremendous artist as well, M People. He's got such a lot of amazing stuff, so many amazing stories to talk about. But before we get started, uh, the usual little reminder, you just get a taster of the music that was significant on Mike's journey here. So if you want to hear the tracks in full and believe you me, you should, head over to Deezer.com and there's a bunch of playlists that Eddie and I have put together and some special stuff from our guests there also. This episode really highlights for me how rich this format is and how how much I love the fact that it shines a light on some characters that you think you don't know, Mm. but actually, you know, a lot of people listening to this will have interfaced with Mike in so many ways. You know, you you might think, oh, Mike Bickering, oh, he was just the tall guy in M people. But my gosh, he signed Kasabian, he signed Calvin Harris, he signed the Happy Mondays. You know, this guy is woven into the fabric of dance music culture. And with that in mind, let us begin. Deezer Originals Trailblazers Mike Pickering Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, Exile and Positiva Records founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's fire starter, if you will, is Mike Pickering, celebrated resident of the Hacienda, founder of Deconstruction Records, the tall one to them people and current A&R to Calvin Harris and Kasabian Mike welcome to Trailblazers I thought you were going to say the good looking one <laughs> well tall and good looking are interchangeable Mike so lovely to see you and, and yeah you too as I light the fire um, I'll hand over to uh, to my colleague Nick to fire the first question at you excellent so don't, don't use fire lighters no we won't no, we no. won't thank you thanks for coming to join us yeah, pleasure. Brilliant, pleasure. To, brilliant to have you in um, and uh, yeah as Eddie said you've had a, you've had a, such a lot of success both as an artist and uh, and as a behind the scenes person guiding other artists so first question what advice would you give to someone who's say out there now they're listening to this and they want to be the next Calvin Harris what, what should they be doing well if they want to be the next Calvin Harris uh, writing songs right. or writing tracks <laughs> and believing in that track and not listening to what anyone tells you listen to your heart mm. um, because you know you'll speak you, well you might speak to lots of A&R men and lots of people like that they don't have a clue what's going to be a hit <laughs> <laughs> they go with their heart as well they yes. should go with I, I've always gone with my heart yes um, and of course things are more data driven now so yes it's, is it viewed do you think it's a bit old fashioned yeah just trust your guts well you know I know that A&R departments have young young people sat at desks uh, analyzing data and that's fine i'm sure there are artists that you would sign when you saw you know that they got lots of streams because they were played on i don't know beats or this or that yeah. or this yeah. blog or that's fine i think that that is a that's a part of it that you can't really um ignore mm. but i also think that they will never leave the art of A&R in to have someone with good ears who goes that's great. Yeah. And, and you know, that. lots about timing. Yes. You yes. know, I mean, when I when I sang Calvin, mm. 
a lot of people thought he was like a novelty act at first because I mean you know the, the first songs were like I like all the girls and yeah. acceptable, acceptable in the 80s, in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. but he did have a lot of great songs and, and I, I signed him at a time when to be honest it was like the second wave of um, Britpop was coming to an end mm. and it was saturated and, and, and I remember I was at BMG at the time before it merged with Sony and they were all salivating over this band called Jolene and the Jing Jang Jongs and I thought oh man this is really poor you know what I mean yeah I remember and I, and I heard Calvin and it was yeah. like a breath of fresh air in the middle yes. of all this just yeah. Britpop dirge really by the time it had got there and and that worked because yeah. he actually by the time it got to um, the beginning of the second album mm. I'm Not Alone which was like a kind of an early 90s rave record yes Everyone was like, oh, wow, this is great. And this, I need this. This is a change. So I always think the stars have got to align as well. Yeah. There's a lot of luck involved. Um, but, um, yeah, I think you've got those things, really. Just just do what you do. So, so And I also, I'd yeah. say, don't don't give up your day job. <laughs> a, lo- a lot of them these days, a lot of the young kids these days, you think, right, I, I want this. I need money to... Get. I mean, when we were in bands and when we were artists, and when, you know, I well, I DJ to to pay my yeah, way. And, yeah. But you know, and I remember like bands have signed that when they sign the thing, the the, the contract, then get their advance, and you know they're about to go out tour and make an album. They go right, I better go and quit my job now. Hmm. You know, um, I think that's quite important. Yeah. You. Do you, do you think that if I could just interject for one second, I'm interested in in the whole the art of A and R and and mm. wanted to, to to postulate with you. It, is it a lost art now? Like insofar as there's so many records being made the non-traditional way, you know, I mean, just in bedrooms and, and yeah. kind of without anyone involved. And 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 I think back to the you know great those great A and R guys that were real sort of guiding fatherly figures that really had huge hearts. No, that they no, went I with think, the James Lavelles I, I, and the I James Endicott. Exactly. And, yeah. And, and yeah. Well, I worked with Endicott for a while. I, I love James, um, but um, they. Um, no, I think they're still around, you know, because when you think about it, yes, you do have a lot of stuff made in bedrooms, but you've also, you know, the success, some of the success stories internationally in the last year or two, people like, say, Sam Smith. Yeah. Who, you know, Jimmy Napier wrote yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. There's a lot of different people have been, and that was really well A&R'd by Nick, Nick Raphael. Yeah. Although, thinking about that, he's old school like me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that, that, so there's still records to be made and people to be put in rooms with other writers and mm. visions to be had mm. um, you know there's also a lot of stuff like you say that is made in bedrooms played in clubs and you know look let's face it we've, we, all of us have been in dance music for, for a long time and the ultimate test for any record or track we ever made was that moment you put it on the turntable and play it and see what the crowd re- how it reacts yeah so you know, I think that's like that modern equivalent of that. Yeah. But I think there's still an art in in A and R, definitely, definitely. So so before we sort of scroll back and 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 get to the to the beginning and your your entry point into music, um, so what are you lo- looking, you know, for then and and uh, in in new emergent artists and and how how do you find 
new talent. So it sounds like you're not somebody who's you're not scrolling through Twitter and no, I scroll through Twitter. I follow comedians and football journalists actually, (laughs) (laughs) and some of them some of them probably have 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 the same talents. (laughs) Yeah, some of the comedians are great on there. Really good base. You can can take the boy out of Manchester, (laughs) but um. But I do no. There's a few on Twitter that are line of best fit and people like that I'll follow and 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 obviously it's DJs and people who have radio shows and yeah. you know. But um, I, listen, for me, it's always been about just hearing something and going, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, from whichever route. So you could be a gig or something. Well, I first you heard Calvin. The, the story with Calvin was quite funny because a um, a publisher was calling me and. Um, he had, I think, girls or one of those early demos yeah. playing in his office. He must have been listening to it. Well, either I've called him or he's called me. And as he was talking away, I went, hang on a minute, what's that? <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know, I had to take it away. Oh, it's Cal- Calvin Harris. I said, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. It was on the in the background. Yeah, when, in an when, you ha- when you're having a, a telephone conversation. Right. So <laughs> look, girls. What is? What is this? I know. Well, they're big enough, aren't they? <laughs> so he said, um, "Oh well, I know, I know who manages him. It's two guys in Kent, Andy and Dean, and and another guy in Scotland, Mark Gillespie." I was like, "I've got to meet him." So they, I got the number. I called them, and they went, "Ah, they knew who I was because they, they were from the dance world, right?" Yeah. So, I was, which was my lucky break. So I said, mm. oh, "Well, I've got to talk to him." He went, "Well, we're, we're just on our way back into London to go and sign with Gut Records." Yes, I was like, yes. I've, "I've got to meet you." So I, I, I had to jump in the car. We were in Putney in those days and drive to Victoria Station. I think it was Victoria Station where they came yeah. in from Kent. Yeah, and then when I met him outside Costa Coffee on Victoria Station and had twenty-five minutes with Calvin. Yeah, and. Uh, and and then went so look make your make your own mind up and um, then they phoned me a bit later and went yeah we want to sign with you amazing so I was like great Oof. unfortunately I I've, I met the guy from IMS a couple of years ago and I didn't know what to say he <laughs> <laughs> was great as well he went. <laughs> So you met him at Victoria's Day. <laughs> yeah, I'm really sorry. Oh. <laughs> you're gazumped. Yeah, oh, it's like your, your dream house. Yes, getting us yeah. onto it. But um, oh. you know, so it, it, it's never the same. It's never uh, the ting tings. Yeah, I heard. I don't know how I got that. But I heard a link to that's not my name, mm. and um, I couldn't find anything about them except that they lived in this mill in Manchester College, Lington Mill. So I got the first train down. Didn't take any overnight clothes. And stood outside trying to get in. I said, I've got to meet these guys, the Ting Tings. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in the end, Jules from the Ting Tings came out and he went, who wants to meet the Ting Tings? No one knows who we are. And I went, I don't know, Mike Pickering. And he went, oh, I know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> and we went drinking for the day. And uh, that was another one. And that was another one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, right. so what I'm trying to say is it's really on the spur of the moment for me. It's like, Brilliant. You know, it's heart overhead, isn't it? it? Is, it's isn't always it? heart overhead. And listen, heart's been broken a few times. There's been quite a few things mm. that I can think of that I've signed that I've absolutely loved. That are, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I was standing as Morrissey said, you stand in front of a bus for, but yeah. they've not made it. And mm. it's sometimes it's timing. I signed this band from Norway called Lorraine, who were three guys, and it was like kind of electronic, beautiful pop music, a bit like Depeche Mode, and. Uh, it just didn't happen and then they kind of went back to Norway and and you know were dropped by the record company and mm. about a, 12 months later um, 
the killers put out Human when they went all electronic, and we were all like, "This was Lorraine. This was exactly yeah, what I remember." They were doing. Lorraine, actually, yeah, and, and yeah, you were well, right. Maxwell did a few mixes and a few. Yeah. They were great. They yeah, were wonderful. Stuart Price, or, Stuart, yeah. Stuart Price, yeah. Stuart Price coming as the killers. That, exactly, it was, that, it was, it was it exactly was that. Yeah, so it's like twelve months out, eighteen oh. months out. So there's things like that. So, so look, let's rewind a lot. Tell us a little bit about when you were a kid and when you first encountered the power of music. Uh, well, I mean, I had, uh, like, my mum and dad were into music anyway, mm. but, and then I had an old older sister who was into it. Um, she used to listen to, like, Sam Cooke and the Drifters and all that, so I was really little. But my first, the first that I think that I loved was about 13, 14 years old when I heard Motown. Yes. I, I just... I mean, for me, it's still the greatest record label that's ever been. And was, at, th at that point that you were 12 or 13, was Motown like the well, hot? It, well, it was actually Tamla Motown then, Yeah, it was like it? the hot... Well, it was just beginning, yeah. Just, I mean, okay. the Supremes just had a number one and, and Temptations and Forte. By the time I was 16, that's all we listened to. Um, it was also Invictus at that time, which was a breakaway, wasn't it, with Holland Dozier Holland, I think, right. wasn't it? And uh, Chairman of the Board and Frida Payne and... And all those kind of records, but um, and I remember we used to go to um, the Odeon on Oxford Road in Manchester, and they used to have three or four Motown acts um, of an e of a Saturday evening over mm. a, a period, which was quite amazing because I remember seeing Stevie Wonder and Temptations, Four Tops, Super. When oh, you were like 13, six, 16 -ish. between fourteen and sixteen, okay, because I was too young to get into the Twisted Wheel. I had um, ah. an older. Kind of half cousin Phil Sachs, who actually took over from me at Factory, right? And was the first manager of Happy Mondays who brought Happy Mondays to me, right? We'll talk about that later. So that's, yeah. that's a kind of a family thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was too young to get in there, but they were amazed, they had a massive influence on me, yeah. Um, okay, and I think they had a, the biggest influence they had was that they were like three minutes, 15 seconds, but per the perfect pop song. Mm. And great dancing and great vocals and yeah, perfect. And is there a particular and there were ghetto ghetto songs? Weren't there? Yeah, is there a particular record that you'd like to give a spin of to just? Yeah, well, I mean, I like, there's a, I mean, there's there's so many of them that I I love, but um, the way you do things, you do by the Temptations. The Temptations were like phew, amazing for me. Trailblazers. With Mike Pickering on the Trailblazers, and you, you were talking about uh, your sort of pivotal first records, and, and you're talking about great musicianship and great vocals. Were you? I listened to a record like, like that. Great I, lyrics, I, yeah. And I, I hear the band. You know, I, yeah. I, I just recently watched that uh, the document, the Wrecking Crew documentary, oh, which is just, just so brilliant. And yeah. you, you're off, I'm, I'm all about the unsung heroes. And yeah. I hear a record like that, uh, like uh, the well, way you do. It's all about the writers, weren't it? Yeah, the artists with the vehicles. So, so did yeah. you? Were you listening to that record? Just, just purely, you know, just loving it on face value, or did you actually think, you know what, I think I might want to do this? No, no, not in those days, because you was just, I was like living in a city, Manchester, and you weren't, you weren't, and I, I'm also, I, um, 
Catholic Catholic schooling, you weren't taught that you could do anything like that. <laughs> you had no self esteem. Yeah. But um, it didn't crop up on careers day. No, <laughs> like, no. Like to be an A&R man and a, a, and a DJ. Boxer, no. Yeah. Do you want to be a priest? No, well you're getting nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but but I mean the I mean those lyrics in that song are just incredible. You know, they're like you know, you you could have been a broom, you swept me off my feet. I mean, it's just they're just the perfect songs for me. Mm. In fact, I I tried when when I started and and all through the right my writing career with them people, it was Motown that I just had in my mind all the time. Really, that and obviously I never emulated those kind of lyrics, but. Mm. You wanted to that, capture the emotion. Yeah, and, and, and we were a bit like that at Deconstruction, yeah. really. That's what we wanted to do, mm. you know. Art and rubbish for the dancing masses. <laughs> so speaking about the dancing masses, I'm interested to know the first time you found yourself in the midst of a, a dancing mass. Well, we, we, we used to, you know, youth clubs were the place where, places where, where, where we used to go and dance. Mm. Um, and there was kind of two... When I was growing up, there was two types of youth. There was... Like hippie kind of what well, we used to call them the Harrys, and they used to like you know King Crimson and Led Zeppelin, and and, and that that was cool. You know, they were generally kind of from a better class of neighbourhood than okay. us, and we were like, you know, I suppose what they call scallies now, but you know, we used to wear really nice clothes and mm-hmm. you know brogues and two-tone suits and all that kind of stuff, and we used to like to go and Ben Sherman's, and we used to like to go to youth clubs and dance. And um, also, I really loved Northern Soul. Phil Sachs, who I mentioned earlier, um, he was a DJ at the Twisted Wheel in Manchester, which was the most famous of Northern Soul clubs. And he used to come to to our house because um, he was like he married my cousin, and um, just play me these great songs, which were the same as as the Motown songs. There were three minutes of like uh, great melodic. Uh, tracks and uh, so I couldn't get in. The, you couldn't get in the place in um, sorry Twisted Wheel because they were really strict on the door. Mm. Uh, Wig and I got in once. They had that woman on the door who was a tyrant. Um, so you you went to Wigan Casino just once. once. Yeah, it was amazing. That's like me with Paradise Garage. <laughs> really, <laughs> just once. I'm just interested to know culturally, just from you know, point of view of somebody that's born in Cardiff <laughs> and raised in London. Who who were they not letting in? Like when you say they were draconian uh, age, on the door, it's age. Oh, okay, it's an age thing because I was only like 16 at that time. Uh, but where you could get in was the Highland Room at uh, Blackpool Mecca. Yes, and Dave Godden and Colin Favor. All those? No, not Colin Favor. Colin Curtis and yeah, all those yeah. people used to uh, play there. Um, and that was amazing. So it was like a big night out. It would be on till really quite late, and then you'd have to wait for the first train home. Yes. So yes. you'd go down and freeze on the beach. And how old, how old <laughs> were you then when you were in... I was about 17 then. Right. And that uh, must have been... Oh, it's mind-blowing. You could stand on the balcony at the um, at the Highland Room, and it was a sprung dance floor, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was just an amazing view to see everyone, like bobbing up and down, dancing, yeah. you know what I mean, in that kind of Northern Soul way. That, yeah. The film that, that Ellen Constantine did this, this year was, was, was very accurate, actually. Yes. A bit dark, but very accurate. Yeah. If you take away the, the story, you know, the, yeah. the narrative, it was really accurate film. And so then <clears> when you were in that environment, was that, was that a point where you started to think, hey, maybe I can, or not, or still yeah, not? Yeah, yeah. All, all I was interested in was buying... Singles, seven inch singles, yeah, 
and sourcing them and buying them. And in, I remember in those days, you know, there was no shows like like Eddie or Pete Tong or well, anyone. No internet, I should point well, out. No, of no. There was there was one show on. Now, would that be the light programme or Radio 1? I suppose it's a light programme because it becomes before it. On a Sunday night for maybe 30 minutes, something like that, there was a guy on there who played a few new records. And that was your lot, was that it? That was your lot. That you used to buy... <laughs> was there not even, like, a pirate? Like, did Caroline no. not exist no. or any of those well, pirate think, ships? No, or? I think they'd already gone by that time. Right. And, and they didn't play that kind of stuff. They'd no. play stuff that was chart-bound. Yeah, contemporary. Yeah, yeah. yeah, contem- yeah. yeah. But, but, but also Blues and Soul was a big a big thing for us. The magazine. The magazine. We used yes. to buy Blues and Soul and then... Well, you'd be, like, sort of sweatily palmed waiting yeah. for, for it to arrive. And Dave Godham was, like, like the, the, the guru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. You, you mentioned never give up your day job. What, what, what were you doing in order to finance this obsession with oh, seven-inch singles then? Well, I left school really early, and, and to get me first scooter... I um, <laughs> I worked at Mac Fisheries, <laughs> breaking up ice to put on the so that went on like the displays where they put all the fish and then gutting fish used to stink. Do you know? I, it was funny enough. It coincided with a period where I really couldn't pull women. Do you know? Do you know what other music industry don has a similar story on his CV? Rod Temperton, really used to used to work wrote, in the fish the yeah, processing. Yes, I've heard factory I've heard in in Hull. Yeah. So same thing. Well, was, I tell you, uh, Martin Fry is a great friend of mine from ABC. He worked in the pea factory in Sheffield. What's it called? Bachelors. Right. And in the peas in the cans. We all used to have jobs, uh, and then I worked at uh, anything: window cleaning, building sites. Anything just to get to, money to yeah. buy records and and keep my scooter looking good and buy the clothes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so so you're there at the Highland Room. What what records? Well, I remember you used to have those plastic uh, like record boxes. Yes. So we, we, there was a lot of house parties in those days. Yeah. Uh, and. It was almost a given that me and my friend Nick Chambers would just be walking, so we'd be in the corner and we'd be putting the records on and dancing. Because you, you, you had more yourself, than Because we had more than yeah. anyway. Did, yeah. did you consider yourself a DJ at that point? Well, you didn't or really did know what... Just, a DJ in those days, yeah, not really, you, you no. You were just the it person was, who happened to have the yeah, teams. It wasn't yeah, a th- DJ just, wasn't a thing, was it? No, it, was it just wasn't you a thing. had more records than I anybody else, records. so you would put them on. It's plus, just simple... Plus, I could be... Mathematics. I was the one who could be bothered bringing them to the party. Okay, so yeah, so, yeah. so I obviously was totally into that. Yeah. 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 So that's amazing that you, you were a DJ even before DJing existed. <laughs> you were just the man that puts on the records at a party. Sounds like it should be the record player at the front of the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> Wilma, go and spin us, play us a record from, from that era, Mike. What, well, what, what, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I ripped off a few friend people, actually. But, right. <laughs> but um, I think they'll be great out on the floor. He's like the classic of that era. Trailblazers, Mike Picker. I'm really on tonight and everything's swinging along. The room is packed up tight, lined at the door, yeah, yeah. So I get my kicks out on the floor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Baby's out of sight when I'm out on the we, we get chatting to you in these records and then we're castrated because the records are just so perfectly 
short. Short. That's short, <laughs> short and sweet. So um, don't be grey. That's going to remind many people listening and uh, and Mike Pickering, our uh, our guest this week. That's probably going to flash you back to the the smell of the combination yeah. of lino flooring and talcum powder. Yes. And very baggy pants. Yeah. Talcum powder, especially. That was a weird one, wasn't it? <laughs> well, this is all something that happened to you, to other people. It never happened to me. So it's really, it's lovely getting, you know, your, your window into that. We, we know that you were the man with the records, but were you a dancer as well? I or were da- you more I, of an observer? I love dancing, but I mean, not. Not the old backflips and nah. the splits. No, I, I I couldn't do any of that. Okay, um, but I but I did like do the northern skip. You know. <laughs> okay, skips but not splits. Yes, yeah, can't split, won't yeah. split. No, no, no. So no. well, so Nick talked about you being a, an observer uh, or, or or and sometimes a participator yeah. and a, and a, a very enthusiastic one. So, what was your entry point into actually being a participant? Um, in music what was the what was was there a tipping point for you when you thought yeah you know I I can do this or I want to be I want to be involved well well, up till like mid 70s I suppose or early 70s I'm I'm not really good on years but I I only really listened to to black music I wasn't there was nothing that interested me outside of black music until David Bowie right and then I heard David Bowie all of it and we all went oh wow oh wow there's something special about this guy and it was so rebellious and you know it, 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 was, it was dressed like a uh, what we dressed like a girl yes. you know and and, and, um, <laughs> and and it just blew me away yeah you know so I really got into him yeah uh, and through him got into Lou Reed and through Lou Reed got into Velvet Underground mm. and the Sound of Detroit you know MC5 all that kind of stuff yeah. um, and did quite a bit of catching up on you know Wayne Kramer and uh, he, you know all that kind of stuff, um, but then of course that led up to 1977 and punk, and that completely changed the way that I thought and everyone thought because mates were picking up guitars, learning three chords, and forming bands. So you know it was just all you needed. It was amazing, and uh, people were finally standing up and like John Lydon and going. These are real boring guys who's, you know, because you'd get prog rock before that, guys who'd do 30 minute guitar solos and yes. you'd just stand there thinking, well, I have, I have, yeah. I have no connection with that whatsoever, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so that changed everything. And, and Manchester and London were the epicenters of it. Really. Right. And so, the, how, and how did that change you? Um, it changed me because it was, I, I was able to kind of be in, in, in the scene and be part of it. And, um, Were you in a, a band? Uh, I had a, you... no, I, I, but um, I, I managed a band for a bit called Fireplace and we did, we released one track. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay. I know. We released one track on this collect, man, a Band on the Wall collective album. Okay. So I cut my teeth there. But then Martin Fry um, from ABC and myself, um, who I, I grew up with Martin, we we um, you know fanzines were really big then. Um, um, J- we, just checking. So were you mates as kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You well, no, from about ABC? fourteen. Yeah, because he was Sheffield. No, he was from Manchester, but he went to university in Sheffield. Ah, I see. Right. Okay. He defected. Okay. Um, <laughs> so um, so we you still mates with him though? Yeah, yeah. We we cycled <laughs> together. Um, okay. But he, he um we we set up a magazine called uh, Modern Drugs, and. Uh, and I did the first ever uh, Joy Division um, review in it. Really? Wow. Okay. And some years before, I'd met Rob Gretton, who was manager of Joy Division, um, 
at Man, at Man City away game we were both Man City fans and we were being chased by skinheads at a Nottingham Forest game um, and we ended up hiding in a bush in this old woman's garden. And it, when they'd gone, you into music, yeah. When they'd gone, he just went Rob Gretton Withenshaw, and I went Mike Pickering Stockport. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the beginning of a very, 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 very long, beautiful it's friendship. It's like a scene out of This Is England. Isn't it? Oh yeah, it, is, it was. It and um, and um, he saw it, and I, I, I was just following this band around because I. I I'd been going to the Electric Circus, which, you know, there was the Pistols, Ramones, Clash, Jam, and supporting the Ramones, that was amazing, because one night supporting the Ramones, this band came on, they're all wearing, the singer's wearing a Fred Perry shirt, and they sang Take Me to the River, Al Green, and I was like, these are amazing, it was a talking heads. Oh, wow. All right. You know, just one of their first gigs in a little club. Wow, that's fantastic. What a moment. Stuff, yeah, television, all those kind of bands. Yeah. So, you know, you could go out all week in Manchester and just see great bands. And um, and you were there at exactly the right, right time. time. I'm so jealous. Was I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. And so and I yeah. so I missed all that. You no, know, it, I came it, into it, post-punk. It you was know. an incredible, incredible time. Martin and I went to everything. But Rob, I saw Rob because uh, he was DJing at Rafters and he went, I read that thing in that fancy and it's great. You should hang around with us more. And, and, uh, and so that, you know, I was, became part of Factory. Uh, and uh, the whole family and, Did, and, and I, I moved in with Rob um, so we, we you know we lived in this house in Charlton and you, all you through everything happening. You, you say you became part of Factory, but you, you what? Did, you didn't have a job description. You just no. started turning up. No until one had a job they, description of Factory. They had a little <laughs> and then you just kept turning up until they. Yeah, well, no, I, I did everything. I mean, I used to. Rob couldn't drive, and he bought a car, <laughs> so I used to drive that to gigs. And you used to roadie Joy Division. -ish? Not, not really. No. I used to roadie Rob. Which right. meant driving him to gigs and skinning up for him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to okay. be, but to be really brutal. Yeah, kind. okay. But yeah, I was kind of part... It was almost like I was part of the Joy Division and New Order because of that. Right. Uh, and, and also, you know... Um, but then in 1980, I think it was, when the scene, the punk scene started telling off, I went to Holland... Uh, because I don't know some from somebody from Manchester was said you can get jobs here just like washing up in restaurants and all that. So I went out there, and I started a band there called Quando Quango. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. So oh, Christ, that was you. Yeah. And and at that time there, it was really weird. Rotterdam was like this magnet for like, you know, there was Tuxedo Moon, James White and the Blacks, uh, Arto Lindsay and DNA. Oh God, yes. All those American no wave acts. Arto Lindsay. They were rocking up to Rotterdam and staying there. So. This guy said to me, right, there's this disused waterworks and there's these people who've squatted the water tower there and you can have the hall. It's called Hall, hall 4, Hall 4. If you, you know, you lads want to get it together. So we spent about two weeks scraping pigeon shit off it because it was derelict. Uh, the guys there built a stage for us. We had a generator and we started putting on nights. Um, I, I, that was when I really started DJing properly because I was the DJ there and we had... There were wonderful posters advertising it, silkscreen posters, Rotterdam Must Dance. And, and I, through contacts, I got, like, the second New Order gig after Ian died and uh, Captain Beefheart and the human, first Human League gig after they split into Heaven 17 and the Human... You know, like, just... Right. We, we had, like, factory nights on there, everything. So um, you were, you were a, a promoter? And promoter, a... DJ, everything. There was yeah. about ten, And I formed Quando Quango, yes. a Dutch girl. And uh, 
when New Order played, Rob Gretton said, you've got to come home. I was like, why? It's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? said, no, you've got to come because I want to open a club. Uh, and I was like, oh, all right. And um, I was thinking about it. And then you used to have to have a stamp in your passport in those days. Yes. Yeah. Even if you, you know, and uh, they threw me out. <laughs> I thought, well, my mind's made up now. <laughs> right. Yeah, because so uh, um, the council, it was a long story, but they yeah. basically, we'd made this place successful and the council wanted to take it over. Yeah. So um, I came home and, and lived with Rob and um, I said, yeah, but I've got to carry on my band, Quando Quango, that I started here. He went, yeah, we'll put it out on Factory. And the first release was Love Tempo, which people in England, well, the media, the enemy, absolutely slaughtered, but in New York... They absolutely loved it. Yeah. And it was unbelievable. So we went and we did a PA with Larry Levan at Paradise Garage. Yeah. And went to the Fun House and the Roxy and Dance And Your first trip to America, was it? First trip to America okay. completely blew my mind. Right. And this was the beginning of how, of Chicago house music. Well, and right? New York house. New, yeah. You know, uh, it was, Electro was really big then. Right, the double Dutch thing. And, yeah, of uh, course. Yeah, Arthur Baker. And, of course, and, in New York. And, yeah, the whole street wave. The, the, uh, yeah, the, the, so eighty four, five, six. Before that. Before that, eighty three. Yeah, I'd say it was 82, 82, 82, 83, 83, 84. Okay. It was the golden era of New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I met Mark Caymans, who was the DJ at the Dance Terrier, who who was my became my mentor for the because basically I was walking in these places, and Mark was playing like Man Parish or uh, some. Or Soul Sonic Force, but in the middle of it, he'd play a new order, you know, mix it with the new order record. Yeah. Or a, uh, I remember him mixing it with Dan Dudley, who was on Rough Trade and um, stuff like that. And you're like, I can't believe this. It's just playing everything. Yeah. He's not using a microphone. Yeah. And it's like, this is just amazing. And um, yeah. that was at the same time we were thinking of opening the club. So I, really, I, you know, a new order were also over there at the same time. So our whole thing was coming back and going, we want this scene in Manchester this is what we want right right now, you just said a really interesting wow. thing which was no microphone because up until that point of course DJs had microphones yeah they did and it was all that was the smooth sound yeah. of the, of, do you know what I mean like, oh, that was just, how oh. nauseating is that first, first girl up here with a pair of knickers gets a free <laughs> bottle of bubbly you know like, all yes. that rubbish yes. birthday yeah. shouts <laughs> birthday I remember when they were building the um, DJ booth at the Hacienda I went you could take the mic out and screw it take that out I don't want that and then when uh, when I was because at first I was hiring DJs I did all the, the promoting, the hiring, the, and they'd come in and go, where's the mic? Not got one. <laughs> Why? I don't want you talking to anyone. That's right. You tore, this, is a, this is a famous story, isn't it? That, yeah. you, that your first executive decision was to tear the microphone, the microphone out of the out booth. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, working for people like New Order and Factory was a dream because you could do that. Yeah. They loved that. So were you kind of in that early Hacienda phase at the same time as you were kind of signing records to factory yeah, yeah. I mean um, so what sort of things well, were the you first signing things I, well the first things I signed were uh, James right uh, because oh, wow. they came in and uh, there, were, there wasn't a lot of people came to the Hacienda at the beginning but they all all the people who did had come to either university or had come to Manchester because of the Hacienda they, they'd actually heard about it yeah and it was a meeting place for like like minded people so James were actually they actually just collect glasses you know glass collectors 
uh, Tim and uh, the others. So they Can I just in. say, you say Tim the glass collector. That's what Tim Westwood used to do at Gossips. Good used to be God, the, Tim really? Westwood was the glass the Star collector. The Roses did it at the International. Did they? They were yeah, glass collectors also. They were also. glass collectors, yeah. Gossips in Dean Street, yeah. where the Batcave was. Oh That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even, I really, even I know that one. I know, I don't know. Tim Westwood's first thing. Wow. <laughs> Collecting the glasses there, anyway. Uh, and so, the, the, yeah, them. And then Phil Sachs comes back in the picture and said, I've because he had a by this time he had a, a stall on the underground market in the Arndale selling he said I'm, I'm making up this new youth thing I was like what he went well I've, I've had this woman I've bought all these jeans I've had this woman make them into like certain type of flair and baggy jumpers and goatee beards and he was basically at the beginning of like Scallies and, mm. and Baldrick's and all yeah. that he said and there's these lads hanging around they've got this music see what you think of it and I played this cassette and I was like it's brilliant so we went to see him, and they hardly had any equipment and everything. It was in a club, uh, like a pub in Salford, dead rough. Yeah. I was like, they're brilliant. I love them. You know, and um, so I signed them. I remember going to Tony, Tony Wilson, and going, yeah, is this band uh, called Happy Mondays? He went, darling, if you like them, sign them. <laughs> I said, don't you want to see them? He went, Rob will see them. So we put them on with New Order, and um, yeah, and you know... Th- and I signed the Mondays. I produced the first EP, actually, which was hilarious because we were in this studio in Bury and they didn't want to leave because they'd never seen anywhere as posh. They had a pool <laughs> table and a <laughs> telly. wanted to live there. Yeah, yeah, they, they stayed overnight. You know. Yeah, wow. OK, <laughs> Look, let's let's hear a bit of music from the Happy Mondays then. So, uh, what, what Well, I mean, there's a few things. You know, Step On is obviously famous. And, and you know, the, 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 the sound of Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne, what they did to them was massive. Yeah. But I think... Hallelujah has just got something special about those times. Yeah. So, hallelujah. Trailblazers. I'm loving that, man. Yeah, happy Monday. So um, can I just say that uh, doing this Trailblazers thing, and I knew this was going to happen, I, I, on a personal level, I really, really love this. But it, it is a real, it's a real education for someone like me because um, in all honesty, Mike, I knew you as a, um, as a Hacienda resident and I knew you, of course, as M people. I've interviewed yeah. you in the past probably a couple of times. But I had no idea that, for example, you had, you know, you were Calvin Harris's A and R guy and and Kasavian's A and R guy, and that you'd that you'd sign the Happy Mondays and that you'd form Quango Quango. You know, you're such a. This is what this thing, this whole show is about. It's the unsung heroes, and it's it's a real education into the actual trailblazer. So I'm really, as you probably gathered, I'm shy. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, but we're we're here to we're here to shout from to the rooftops. To coax it out, I know. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, joking apart, and we, we will go into the more, the more obvious things about the Happy Mondays. But I, um, I just wanted to say, like this, this is a real kind of line in the sand in music. This band and you're signing them, and you're helping presumably to A and R them. And was this not historically? Um, a fascinating time because this was correct me if I'm wrong the first time that a DJ had been asked to produce a record yeah. by a band yeah which is now of course commonplace yeah but also it was, was the it first was, one wasn't it it was it was a fusion of two types genres of music in what indie if you want to call it indie yeah. guitar music and dance floor um, um, you know Paul 
Oakenfold and I were, were, were very close around that time. We, um, you know, Spectrum in London and, and the Hacienda, there was a kind of a, a kinship between the two. And actually, Paul and I did the Hacienda tour of America in 89 around this time. Which, I've got the t shirt, actually. Yeah, it's a great t shirt. <laughs> great t shirt. I mean, we were talking about, I saw him in, in, in uh, LA last week and. Um, <clears throat> And everyone was so bemused by us; they didn't have a clue what was happening, how things have changed in America. You know, I mean, we just. But it, but so, you know, so I produced the first album, yeah. uh, first EP, yeah, which is very kind of indie and stuff. And and Nate and and Phil Sachs had stopped managing them by this time, and and Nathan McGough was managing, and and we wanted to fuse the music. We, you know, the the the, 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 the Mondays were kind of born out of the hacienda. And there had to be a, you know, there had to be a fusion of these two types of music. That that the music that Sean and 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 the boys were into was like, signing the Family Stone to electro to house, you know. Yeah. So um, Paul and uh, Steve Osborne were made. We started started to do quite a lot of uh, remixes at that time, and I always had this great role in bass and beats, and we decided. That was the thing to do, you know, let's give it a go. And I can't remember the first... They, they just did a remix. And it was so great that we're like, well, you should, be, you should produce. Because before that, we'd had John Cale, who oh, Phil yeah. Sachs and I could hardly even speak, I mean, John Cale in, in Strawberry Studios. And he came out of it and went, I hate them. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were doing so many drugs in his studio. Yeah, and he couldn't, couldn't get them focus. to work. And he yeah. just went, I hate these guys, you know. And, um, you know, we, we tried lots. Um, you know, um, Martin Hannah, of course, produced them. But the magic came when Paul and uh, Steve Osborne produced them because it, was, it, it captured the zeitgeist at that moment completely. And do you think that just on an obvious level it, that they were used to people being really unprofessional <laughs> in a that, professional environment. Yeah, well, by that time, you see, uh, we were all being purposely unprofessional because <laughs> we were all in the summer of love and we didn't give a shit. And all we wanted to do was get high and love music, you yeah. know, and, uh, what a time. and tear up the rule books. Yeah. So it fitted perfectly, to be honest. And did did Tony Wilson lead this agenda then when you're there at Factory? Is he saying no? Yeah. Tony lo- Tony loved it. Tony loved anything anarchic, right? Uh, so he, he did he, encourage. You know, the Hacienda uh, is actually taken from a Situationist review. The Hacienda mm. must be built. Mm. Um, the, the quote that was on all our things is from Italian anarchists um, mm. pamphlet. Hmm. That's where it came from. So um, and. Um, but he loved it, yeah, and, and and all of a sudden, you know, from being from darling, if you like them, sign them. He's like, actually, Mike, these are amazing, you know. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, the whole Manchester thing came through the media, uh, which was very strange for us because you know we were just getting invaded every weekend, uh, the whole of like the northern quarter in Manchester by camera crews. It's like one of these anthropological uh, <laughs> camera crews from all over the world. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to interview and interviewing people in the street with um, 
identity t-shirts on, you know, and in spiral carpets, moo t-shirts and, you know, <laughs> floppy hats. And, no, yeah. you, you, used, uh, you used the word baldricks yes. as, a, as, a, as a collective noun, yeah. which is one of the funniest well, we things fed that. We fed that to, to ID and said, oh, there's this big new movement called the baldricks. And we got little Martin and Cressa who later danced for the... And they bought it up, line and sinker, you know. I'm just pissing <laughs> they myself. They did three pages on it. <laughs> baldricks. Yes. Oh, God. It's a new movement. Amazing. Oh. And luckily, they didn't ask how many were in the movement because it was only Cressa and Little Martin. <laughs> so you mentioned about the Happy Mondays and the, the amount of drugs that were being consumed in the studio. Yeah. Were, were these guys, you know, is it hard work? Was it challenging day-to-day? No, not of? at that time. Right. Only, in, only as it wore on and the drugs got darker. Right. Then it was. So the front end then was, it was terrible. The front end was fun and it yeah. was all cool and everybody was. Yeah. Just it's enjoying almost it. like any, mm. any, any film. This in it where yeah. you know it, it, it has its high moment and then it all disintegrates. Mm. Yeah. And it did disintegrate. You know when when heroin and stuff came on the scene. Well, yeah, yeah. Seg- I presume segueing from. From from ecstasy and the, it, yeah, coke to the to the darker stuff. It's then, not the then best. It's, just, it's not no, the best route to of take. Of course, it's it? the, the, been the ruination of many of our favourite <laughs> yes, bands yeah. and, and artists and, and 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 lives. Yeah, it was a shame. And you were you were still were you dealing day to day with uh, the band? Well, as, no, I didn't as, deal. As those darker times kind yeah. of came about. Yeah, listen, and, and you know, I used to go on DJ with them, and I remember one night in Paradiso that, it, and I DJ there, reached an all time low, which is. I won't go into details, no. but um, at that point, I thought yes. this is this is over. Right. You know. But you know, Sean made a comeback with Black Grape because they were amazing. Yes, yes. I was nothing to do with them, but I it was still one of my favourite bands of the time. I'm still in touch with Kermit. Yeah, Kermit's great. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, he's working with Greg Wilson at the moment. I think. So you were playing some amazing dance music at yeah. the Hacienda. How come Factory didn't end up releasing? Well, that, that, that was the the turning point for Factory. Really, was Rob Gretton and I could see what what, what was coming, and and I was I beginning. I you know, and Mark Kamen's got me a gig in um, Tokyo, and all of a sudden that, and and I went to Tony and said, you know, look, I think DJ, darling, DJs will never be stars. <laughs> wow, Tony Wilson said that. Yeah, to you. well, right. uh, he said two things, and look, he's always owned up to it. I'm not yeah. slagging him off now; he's no, gone. No, sure. uh, and um, and uh, I said, well, I don't know, you know. He said, no, no. And then Rob and I, we wanted to have a, a factory dance label because hmm. we'd already had a, a, a really good history of it with Fifty Second Street, Quando Quango, New Order, if you like, yeah. uh, Marcel King, um, all those kind of records we'd done, yeah. like the. The, uh, Fidel, the Fidel Fatty record, the Rye record that we put to like house, me and Mark Caymans did. Yeah. And 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 <laughs> Tony famous quote is, "Darling, dance music will never happen." And um, I said, "Well, do you mind if I go and do it on my own?" <laughs> he said, "Darling, of course." And uh, we and my managers at the time uh, with Quando were Pete. Dadfield and Keith Blackers. Yes. So the three of us, uh, we'd made it, I'd made this Tikoi record. Yes. Uh, I just did it in a basement of this guy's house uh, for no money. I just I recorded it 10 minutes onto a cassette, actually. And no one had put it out. So uh, 
they said, well, look, we're, we're managing this other band as well called Hot House, and we can't get arrested with them. Uh, and there's a really good singer in it, which was Heather. Yes. So we set up the label. Heather Small. Heather Small, yes. yeah. And we set up the label, and, and they were the first two releases. And, we, and we had an the, office in Islington. But the label was born a little bit out of necessity then, yeah, almost. Totally. you needed to find a way to get these records totally out. Totally, so we'll do it ourselves. Other people wouldn't all the, all the support for Tico, the support for Tico came from Stu Allen in Manchester, who had a show on Piccadilly or yes. whatever it was called. Yeah, then. yeah. And he had this Sunday night show, and it... And he just kept playing the whole ten minutes of this tape, which was fantastic for us. And down here, the Cold Cuts yep. guys okay. had, were on Kiss, which was a pirate. Yep. Yes, of course. And and Norman Jay, mm. and they played. And, and it was I remember because I had to go to it to do an interview on Sunday, and it was on a tower block. I think that would be in East London at the top of a tower block. Yeah. And um, and it became quite. a Big underground record down yes. here in London, which yeah, was quite, yeah. you know, for me was quite weird. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk a bit more about right. that the, the the transition and the way that that London got uh, kind of house music and transitioned out of what went before. Because I'm going to ask Red you about. Roof. I'm going to ask about you about when you, you came oh, to yeah. London and played at the Astoria, which is okay. quite interesting. But should, yeah, let's let's listen to Tikoi um, and Carino. Trailblazers, Mike Pickering. And Carino on Trailblazers, and uh, we're with Mike Pickering. And so this is this is the first deconstruction record, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, we we only we only pressed a thousand, and um, we we put them in like a you know brown paper bag that you used to get like from the shops, and <laughs> yeah. had Tico Carino written on, which is now a collector's piece, I would imagine. And as I said, you know, it got played on. on it only used to get played really on ultra specialist shows or pirate radio which was a lot in London and this was a total cottage industry this yeah. was before yeah. BMG and before no, we, we just stuff. sat in a little room in Islington and, and mailed them all out yeah, took them all down the post office and, <laughs> and something that I want to sort of touch on is that house music didn't just sort of instantly explode in London and everything was great because I remember there was a well that was 1987 that's early 87 it's not 88 that. so before acid yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so I'm, I'm I'm remembering a time when you first was it your first gig in London when you no. came and DJ'd at the Astoria yeah it's funny really because you see even before the ecstasy thing happened, we were on a Friday night. I was playing house for over a year. It started with stuff like that kind of was a slightly New York based, like Jump Back, Dar Braxton. But then you'd get stuff like Colonel Abrahams and yep. JM Silk and Chicago stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the guys that were coming to the uh, kids that were coming to the Hacienda who, who used to be into acid, uh, acid house, Northern Soul, yes. were really digging it because it was four to the floor again. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, it wasn't three minutes. <laughs> they needed a bit more stamina. But um, so we were already playing all that stuff, and it was really going down well. And and yeah, the, the incident you're talking about, there's a guy who had a club in London, uh, Simon Goff, called Fever, which was and, a great club. And he was my um, my boss right. at my first proper 
entry point into the industry so secret promotions and i think that was when we met yeah that's right we worked on the north compilation north album, compilation yeah so simon yes yeah, so, did simon simon got you down to play well, the it, it, we, we, you know simon was one of the first person from london who saw what was happening at the house and he suggested that we did a, a swap so they came first to us and uh, had this night where uh, simon and i dj'd and then we did the same at the Astoria, which I think was very late, 1987. Yeah, could be. And uh, I came on, and, and um, I was DJing away, and I remember playing Strings of Life, which was already the release, and Strings of Life, Derek May, and I could hear this, like, rumble. <laughs> and I looked up, and everyone was still with their arms folded, booing me. Whoa! Uh, and I was like, oh, oh. And then this, <laughs> this guy slipped me this... Uh, no, you know, people, you remember, people used to slip your notes with requests. Yeah. Because yeah. I should explain, in London at that time, um, Rare Groove was king. Yeah. So Rare it was Groove. a lot slower and funkier and, and you know, and and, um, and he, put, he put, why are you playing this? I wish I'd have kept it. Yeah. Why are you playing this Chicago homo music when you could be playing the real Rare Groove? I was oh, like, my God. Being a Mancunian, we have a real awkward streak. And I was like, right. <laughs> Up went the BPM, on went all the house I could find, yeah. and I literally emptied the place. And then roll on to June, so six months later, Nicky Holloway said, I've got this night at the Astoria called The Trip. And I played the same, more or less the same records with people absolutely swinging from the rafters. But, but go back to that moment. This is an interesting uh, moment. And you say that you literally cleared the floor. Yeah, but I cleared I the bet club. You, I bet you there was one or two people in there that, that that might have just gone. Oh my god! And they were just like alone on the dance floor. They're just going. Thank I like you. <laughs> I, I remember when I first played drum and bass in Ibiza. I was the first person to ever play drum and bass in Ibiza, and and I pretty it? much cleared manumission main room. But but there was a a, a, a phalanx of people left there that were doing Islamic kowtows to me wow. and just going thank you thank you so much I don't know what this is I remember this Spanish guy going I don't know what this is but it's brilliant thank you so much there must have been no I, you know what I don't think there was really you actually literally I think I made it. it I think I made it out the back door yeah <laughs> at the Astoria yeah and that that's the kind of thing that people sometimes don't realise they they think oh just house music comes along and it exploded and everything great but there was a you know there was a oh yeah there was a a good year where yeah what like, exploded it in the rest of the country and London included was ecstasy mm. that's what changed it all yes you know uh, up to that point we were playing house music to people who weren't taking ecstasy mm. and that was I think the main difference yeah and then we got into that it's a whole phase. fashion thing yes know? where like the whole country mm. got you know, hit 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 a, a similar understanding. Well, when, it, when it hit the, uh, I always say when it hit the hacienda because it was a very long club. It was like a Mexican wave over three weeks, <laughs> right? <laughs> the last three weeks of the whole people and the way they dressed and the way they danced changed. Yes, you could see it. Oh, that, that up there they're doing it. Oh, under the balcony and down to here. Oh, in front of the DJ booth, and that was it. Bar takings went down. Bar takings went down. Little fish, big fish. The noise went box up. Went up. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. No. It, yeah. Wow. So, so the deconstruction then is up. It's rolling. Yeah, you're, start... you're playing all these amazing records. At well, the what was happening was I was playing these records. Everyone's going absolutely, and it was different in those days as well because you had no internet. 
You didn't have the specialist uh, show. Well, actually, Jeff Young had his show, didn't he? And then uh, yeah, the but Pizza it was limited. Cola. But it was, it was very limited. limited. And um, so you could build a record at, at your own club. The other difference was in a world now of guest DJs, and I'm, I'm one of them. All of us had our own nights. That's how we grew up. Yeah. Oki had uh, Spectrum. Uh, Weatherall had Boys Own. Yeah. Um, I had uh, the Hacienda, you know, yes. you built up your night and, and you know, I, I didn't even used to take holidays because I didn't want to miss doing it, you know. And um, so I'm doing a night, I know my crowd and I'm, if I'm getting a record, I'm thinking, I can't wait to play this tonight. Yeah. You know, I've just picked this up. This is amazing. So anyway, one fr- one Friday night I'm, I'm playing and I used to play stuff if people brought it in I'd have a quick listen. Yeah, I'll play that. This Italian guy comes in with a... I, don't, I can't remember if it was on a cassette. I think it might have been on a cassette. And he went, will you play this? And I was like, I'll have a listen. And, then I'll, I'll, and it's Black Box right on time. And I'm like, wait a minute. Rewind. Wait a minute. Rewind. <laughs> so, wait a minute. I said, Jesus Christ, this is amazing. So um, he's got, he comes back knocking. You're going to play it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to play it at 12 o'clock because that was like peak time. Peak time. And was that Italian guy Daniele Davoli? Yeah, Daniele. Oh, bless him. <laughs> and, I uh, love that guy. And um, so I play it and the play, you know, there was a door at the back of it and it's like, it's bang, bang, bang. What's that? What's that? <laughs> you know, people. So yeah. I'm like, oh my God, you know. So uh, he'd gone by the time the night had finished. I've got this. The next morning... I rang Pete Adfield and I went, Pete, I played this record last night and I, I've got a feeling. Yeah. It's just the biggest record I've, I've heard in years. Yeah. It's massive. He went, it's not Italian, is it? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. He went, all right. Yeah, I've got it too. They came in the office on Friday morning in Islington. I said, Pete, we've got to sign it. He went, I agree with you. So I think that was like Saturday morning and I think we signed it on the Tuesday but well, the funny thing about it, of course, was Daniele and the boys, it's not a sample. I'm like, Pete, that's Lolita Holloway. Mm. No, 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 it, it's not, it's not. Believe me, no, Daniele, it, that is Lolita Holloway. <laughs> so we got to, we got to put it out. The next thing, we've got Lolita Holloway um, and everyone from Sal Sol, everyone onto us, you know. Radio One picked up on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. We actually put out the, um, we, but the funny story is, we had to re-record it straight away. And we got Heather to do it. She flew out to, I think they were from Medina in Italy. That's Heather Small. Heather on that Small record. sings on Black Box right Good on time. And, when, and if, we, if we play it, you, when God. you hear oh, it, yeah, knowing that, course, you'll, yeah. You'll, yeah. you'll pick up on it more now. Oh, I remember, um, you know, and, and we did a deal with the great thing was Dan Hartman wrote it. And we sent the cassette to Dan Hartman and he said, I love it. You can have 50%. He was wonderful about it, and um, instead of taking it all, and and yeah, and, and the rest is history. It was one of the biggest dance records of all time. But it was a big drama, wasn't it, at the time? Oh, I, I, I actually I sat next to Lalette Holloway on a bus going to one of these raves. You know, like the artist. She said coach. Um, she rang us up, going, "Why is that black bitch singing my song on the, on top of the pops?" And yeah, and, and ba- basically, she said the same thing to me when yeah. I sat next to her on this bus. She was, she was you know, she was literally. Yeah. But, sort of, you know, crying but and stuff. But, was... you see, she owed Salsol loads of money. Right. So they said to us, no, don't worry about it, just pay, pay us. us. And yes. you don't mess with those guys, those Salsol guys. Right, I mean, they're right. New Yorkers through and through, you know what I mean? Right. So, it, yeah, that was all going on. We just took it, because we always used to love slogans, so we took full pages in all the music papers with who sings, who cares. 
black box ride on time deconstruction. <laughs> yeah, you had some great slogans yeah, going. Yeah. I like that. I've still got that T-shirt that says uh, destroy all melody. Yeah, and bomb the past. Yeah. Bomb the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan- Daniele. Pete Hudfield loved him. Bless him. Yeah. Daniele Davoli, I have a special soft spot in my heart for because he taught me one of my most valuable life lessons and it's nothing to do with music. He came to lunch one day and I, and I love... I, because he's Italian, I, yeah. I just thought, I'm going to make pasta for him. I'm that confident. You know, I'm going to yeah. make you a pasta. And I made him a really good pasta. But, but as soon as I, I... Because it's sort of like I'd been taught to do this from growing up in the 70s. You know, my mum did it. I put a bit... I was about to put oil in the pasta water. He goes, no, 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 no. 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 And I went, what, 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 what? He goes, don't put oil in the pasta water. And I go, why? It's to keep... The-. He said, no, 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 don't tell me this shit about keeping it separate. This is just a 90s... He went on this rant about... about in the 1970s, maybe somebody like Fanny Craddock or the 60s said, put oil in your pasta water. No Italian in the history of the world has ever... Really? ...put oil in pasta water. And Daniele, bless him, he said, think about it. He said, think about... He said... The whole point of pasta is to unite the pasta with the sauce. True. If you put a layer of oil on the pasta, you're, you're putting a layer, you're putting a, a per, an impermeable layer between the two. It's absolutely insane. I mean, literally, the only Italians that have ever done it were ones that were sectioned under the Italian Mental Health Act. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, with with that image, let's let's hear Daniele's finest moments. Trailblazers, Mike Pickering. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. So uh, I guess this is our entry point into end people now. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, so you were, you, were, you were involved... But then there was a way for you to get even deeper involved, well, which is to actually be a to actually be well, a. Well, at the time, I was doing um, lots and lots, loads of remixes, and Graham Park and I was like uh, become my uh, DJ partner at the Hacienda. We were doing loads, but it was kind of a bit soul destroying because you'd get I don't know some record, and you'd pr- probably take a couple of pieces of the the vocal, a tiny little bit, and then do do a whole new dance track. And I was like, yeah. it's kind of and. You, you handed it in, never heard back from the record company, no, no thanks. And at this time, I was writing songs. I began to write, I thought, I can write songs, I can do it. And I'd done a couple of demos. Funnily enough, I did this demo in Stockport, in Strawberry, and I had um, Lisa Stansfield and, and uh, what what were they called, Blue Zone, which was the brass section, mm. uh, doing backing vocals and everything. And Lisa said to me, yeah, these are really good songs. You should write songs, you know, because I've, I've been so into tracks. Yes. And Pete, uh, Pete Hadfield heard me said, "Yeah, w- we should do something here." By this time, we'd signed Deconstruction to uh, well, not we hadn't signed it to it, but we'd we'd yeah we'd signed to uh, RCA BMG. Yeah, had a load more hits. Yeah, we had loads. K Class, K Class, Bass Heads, Enjoy. 
Yeah, enjoy Very one of sad. the other so early right You had Kylie at one point, yeah. I remember. Felix. Yeah, Felix, Felix was don't you want... Yeah. Uh, Kylie Minogue, yeah. Although, that was kind of... Later. Yeah, that was a bit later. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had loads of hits, hit after hit, for a year or two, a couple of years. And, of course, all the Italian stuff. We had loads of Italian yes. uh, hits. Um, and... Um, I can't remember what so it's Pete, Yeah, Pete was heard oh, some, yeah, so, of, so, some people demo. So he said, well, he why said. don't you do, like, um, an album a bit like Jazzy did with Soul to Soul, where you have different vocalists and different... Right. And I was like, yeah, great, I'd love to do that. But I'd seen Heather mm. sing uh, with Hot House. They actually supported Barry White at the Albert Hall. <laughs> and I went with Martin Fry again. Martin put something, and I was going, that girl's amazing. But she, was, she had so much stage fright that she was just looking at the floor... It is a tough place to play, to be honest. I said, I don't care, her voice is amazing. And I remember we went out one night with Pete and Keith and I said to her, I want her, I've got some songs I want to mm. write for you. She was like, yeah, great. Because they were, I think they weren't getting on. And uh, and I wrote How Can I Love You More and got her to do the vocal on it. Did you write that on your own? Or? Yeah, I wrote it on my own. I used to write everything... Um, melody and lyric, along. just yeah. both and both would melody and lyric come at the same time, or would you have like a melody in your head and then later you'd fit a lyric to For it? For that, or- I had the melody, the words, because the words were always really important to me, and then I had this riff that uh, is from an old Bruce Springsteen track, a slow Bruce Springsteen track, which I can't remember. I think it's oh. Racing in the Street. Da, 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 hmm. da. And it, that's why it goes. Da, 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 da. Oh, right, so yeah. I had those two things. That's like, and I had a you know like a pocket re- dictaphone yeah. recorder and put them down. And Pete introduced me. I said I need some. I need someone who's a really good musician to help me with all this. And he he introduced me to Paul Hurd, who was his one a really good friend of his. And yes. Paul and I immediately hit it off. Great. Um, Paul lived in Hackney, so I used to come down and sleep on the studio floor in Hackney yeah. in his house. Yeah. Um, we had a great time. And um, and then, yeah, Heather came in and we did a couple of tracks. Martin did a track. I can't remember what that was called. And, yeah, did a few different vocalists. So so you sort of, for on for the M People Project, was it generally you coming up with melody and lyric and just yeah. going, hey, Paul, now I've got this melody and this lyric? Yeah, obviously, down the line, or we worked more to morph? together. No, I was kind of the ideas, man. Yep. So I'd come with my record box and go, I really love this Something beat like and this. I like this and yeah, a bit like this and I've yes. got, I've got this, uh, these lyrics and this and I, I'd, I'd have them sung into a... It was quite you, weird, really. I remember... Um, Search for the Hero, which is one of the biggest ones. I the 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 chorus. I had it sang whole, lyrically too, into this dictaphone, and uh, the verses. There were just there was just twice as many lines as there. And Paul was like, "You know what? It's this is absolutely amazing, but there's, there's too many lines. If you take that line out and that line, and it's basically every other line is what you used. Yeah, so you yeah, edited it down, yeah. and it became." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, um, we were totally self-contained. Right. We, um, um, which was perfect because of my uh, position at Deconstruction. We'd write, record, produce, mix. Basically, we'd go to the record company. Is the DAT player? Yeah. With the album, it's yep. all ready. It's all in, and that's the first they ever heard of it. <laughs> It was great. It was, uh, oh, I mean, if only life was like that. Self A and R. Yeah, it was self A and R. 
I mean, yeah. you, you've not mentioned so far in, in this conversation wanting to be famous. You know, you got well-known as a DJ, etc. Was it your... Was it something that you wanted? I, no, I want to be a no, star. Not really, no. I want to be a pop star. You don't have a big ego, do no, you? No, so. I don't think any... You know what? I don't think any of us did. Heather, Heather had terrible stage fright. Right. You used to have to drag her on stage most nights. <laughs> I'm sure she won't mind me saying that. Yeah. You know, she had hypnotherapy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Paul was just... He's so easygoing and he just, want, he just loves music. Right. And I was like, well, I'm... I kind of prefer DJing, really, but this is this is all a good laugh. And then you and became, I did both. I used to yeah. DJ. I mean, you know, the early gigs did the Hacienda and Renaissance in Mansfield, so we were part of that scene. We were loved in that scene. Yes. Um, and then all of a sudden, it started really taking off, and I was like, "This is great. I really love playing live." And I, you know, I obviously used to play live with Quando Quango and stuff, but I was like, "This is great," and the crowds were really amazing. Yeah. And then I had a bit of a quest where I was like, dance music is so looked down on. I mean, I remember when we won the Mercury Prize, the Ferrari over us winning the Mercury Prize was quite amazing because the 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 the, the media, especially the broadsheet media, I remember Kathleen Moran having a real go at us the next day in the paper because they seemed to think it was the property of like indie bands, mm. you know. And there was still that snobbery against what they describe as disco music you know yeah, it was almost yeah. like in America where they burnt all the records in the baseball field yes. you know what I mean it was still like that and I thought I want to take this to arenas and stadiums if possible and that, so that was my quest that's interesting you know because that almost parallels the point where you were getting handed the note mm. and you and it was somebody going like oh you shouldn't be playing house here and you're like I'm going to play more house <laughs> yeah. and then that's a, that's a sort of update it's like that, going, I, you shouldn't be winning awards I'm going to win shitloads I think you'll find out it's a Mancunian <laughs> trait actually. Yeah. but um, so that was yeah that's what it was and um, yeah it was quite funny really you know into that was like the beginning of the 90s so we had about 10 year, 9, 10 years and I got to the point in 2000 where I thought I've done it now I don't, I'm not getting any buzz off this at right. all and just walked away right yeah it was quite weird and, and, and I still believe I have this theory that um, there may be the odd exception but in all the big writing partnerships and big they, they have a golden period and then they just, they're just they just okay after that. I mean, even like massive sellers, when you think of Elton John, maybe three fantastic albums. Mm-hmm. Bowie's an exception for me always, mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. he's had some real turkeys. Mm. Jagger and Richards, still mm-hmm. amazing, but how many albums did they have before? Now they keep putting out albums and they're not great. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's a, always a golden period. So I thought, I've had my golden period. I, I, what I'm writing now is just going to be dead normal. Not really very good. And did you exit from all that aspects yeah. then? Yeah, because walked uh, out him. Right, right. And does, in a nice way, we're yeah. still friends. But is there any ongoing activity for M people? I think there was until recently, and then I right. saw the other week they did a gig, and Heather announced it was the last time she was doing an M people gig. Right, so she's. I've not got into the uh, the specifics. I've not the specifics of that one yet, and, you, and it is like fifteen years ago. I don't yeah. really care, but and you, you were were you cool to sort of like look carry carry on? You know, yeah, if because, you want to keep doing live or whatever's fine. No, but I'm just I not love them be, to do that. You know, because of course it's in some cases the the pivotal guy doesn't want that to happen. It's like if I'm not going to be doing it. Well, you let's see, just, I was very happy writing, producing, I, I'm not a virtuoso musician, so playing live, I played a bit of saxophone, badly. Yeah. Uh, bit of backing vocals, badly. Um, 
and basically had a great time. Yes. But, but that wasn't my my forte was not the live shows, even though I was on, I was on them all. That was Heather. Yes. Heather was amazing. Yes. My forte was writing and producing and mixing. And that's I was the happiest in the studio. And yeah. connecting. You know, you're, yeah. there's a common thread with people that we've met in this show in my life who I respect a lot and the Goldies and the Lavelles and these people they're, they're, you're connectors yeah and it, it, it's something that it comes from love and, yeah. and, a, and an open it, heart totally sort of embracing the, of people well James Lavelle and yeah that, you know that was what James was all about getting a scene so he could connect people that was that we did it at the Hacienda with like minded people yeah with the band you know it was Put it put people together for their lives and their careers, really. Great. Let, let's hear a, a bit of uh, music from M People. What, what have you? Well, I, the, I suppose the first big hit, the real breakthrough, was uh, "How Can I Love You More," which is very close to my my heart because um, it, it was about my daughter when she was first born. But the great thing about it was that um, Sasha's remix. He actually really uh, remixed "Someday." We did a version of Someday C.C. Yeah. Rogers and he, he remixed that and it didn't happen it was a little bit too early and I was like that's one of the best remixes I've ever heard in my life we're going to put out How Can I Love You More I want you to do it exactly this. and you know what Sasha's like I can't do that I'm not, I've already I went please Sasha please I begged him we were like on our knee please do the same for How Can I Love You More and he did and it you know it was like top five hit Trailblazers People remixed by Sasha. Um, how can I love you more? And, and I, I get a sense of uh, of a wheel turning full circle with this because that um, gorgeous melody that you, Mike Pickering, wrote and spilled into a dictaphone one mm-hmm. one day um, that could be a Motown melody, couldn't it? It's yeah. just pure. That's just right back to your exactly. to your roots. That was what that's what I was saying earlier about Mot- <clears throat> Motown. When I when I realised I could write. I just based everything on Holland Dozier Holland and, and yeah. you know and uh, yeah I think that, that and those the, words How Can I Love You More is the nearest thing to a Motown thing yeah. that we did because it's, it's, it's a combination of melody and just a really poignant sweet simple lyric that can just yeah. Yeah. that everybody can relate to I wrote that on top of the Arndale Centre in Manchester because <laughs> I, lived, I lived in a flat on top of the Arndale <laughs> <laughs> how Brilliant. romantic oh I love it <laughs> Um, so, uh, so you you know you did end people, yeah. and then you and knowing when to walk away is is a is a yeah. is a good thing, isn't it? It's a strong, I think it's a so, strong yeah. character trait. And um, then you you immerse yourself. You you were immersed in music, and you um, you say you were a consultant at you, you, you well, crossed no, over from actually, artist at to, that to point when I walked away. I was just DJing a little bit, and. Um, I I retreat. I bought a house in the south of France, in the Languedoc in France, and I thought, oh great, well I'm just going to sit around here now. And uh, after a, a couple of months of drinking loads of wine and getting stoned, I was like, 
I, 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 I'm not sure I should do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not sustainable. I'm also, a real, I'm also, a, I'm, I'm like a cat on a hot tin. I'm like someone who's always on the go, and I'm yeah. like, no, no, you can do it. No, no, I can't. Yeah, you can. You know, talking to myself. Yeah, I get Sky put in there. No, you can't have Sky. You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the, the Catholic boy going, no, you can't. Yeah, yeah, and the rest yeah. of you going, yes, I can. And, and, and this guy Jed Doherty was um, head of. Uh, BMG Records and I'd known him for a long time another Man City fan and um, he said uh, he, he had a house you know about half an hour away for it, and he came round and he went mate I want you to come and work uh, for the record company I just started laughing man. I'm like you're kidding I? I can work for a record company he said well you work for Factory and Deacon I went it's slightly different than going into a corporate <laughs> record company right you know mm. and he, he's like no you should do and I went nah nah it's not for me he said well listen I'll leave you a few things uh, and have a listen so after a few days I'm like listening through and there's most I said, this is absolute rubbish you know what I mean <laughs> but in the middle of it was Processed Beats by Kasabian right and, and I'm like whoa what's this you know this is unbelievable they've got to be Mancunian and uh, so I mean he's very clever Jed for this so it, it, I'm sure he knew so I rang him up I went what's this band Sabian what is it he went I thought you'd like that one he said uh, I'm going to sign him on a, a, a development deal as he used to call it in that day mm. you know he said I'm not sure about it. I went it's brilliant um, so Weren't they not called Kasabian then? Mm. Were they called something else? They were called, uh, yeah. Because my mate, I'm sure my mate Aston from the Freestylers got given oh. something by them, and it wasn't Kasabian. It was before, way before all of this, and they were like being developed, mm. and that was the, there was a sense of yeah, like, but trying that, no, to that find was that before, producer. I think no, I think when the, the, I think they were called Kasabian when they first came to BMG. Yeah. I'm not sure there, but I'm, and I can't remember the name. But there's a huge connection here. You know what I'm going to say because we are we are uh, well, you know, we're by a fireside, but that by a fireplace, but that fireplace <laughs> is in a building that I used to work in, and that I famously discovered their demo. In yeah. fact, this song in the bin yeah. at XFM because yeah. XFM was going through one of his many. You know, different phases, and that, that, that particular no, phase was we're not I've playing got, any dance music. You, it, nobody played Kasabian. Except me. Except you. Hold, yeah, hold on a minute. Can you just tell me about the specifics of how you come to find something in a bin? Oh, OK. Well, I've got to explain <laughs> I'm interested that. in... Well, this is... Yeah, OK. So XFM were like, we are not playing dance music at that time. Yeah. We, we're an indie rock station. And they refused to even play Galvanised by the Chemical Brothers that I remember right. came out around about that time. OK. And, you know, in every radio station, there's uh, a, a, when I say a bin, um, I don't mean the place that you put your, your, your half-eaten sandwiches. So it's like a... <laughs> recycling. A, a, yeah, it's recycling. <laughs> yeah. So it's all of the CDs that come in that people don't want this goes into this big bin. It's exactly. like a big exactly. box. Okay. And because they weren't, nobody was playing dance music, that was gold for me, that bin. I'd come in, at that, that, that time my show was on a Sunday, and I used to come in and I used to trawl through that bin and just find stuff that... I hadn't been sent by pluggers that I didn't know or bands that I didn't know or there'd be wow. demos in there. There'd be, you know, there'd, there'd, there'd be lots of big releases from people like Universal or whoever I liked by pluggers that I hadn't, uh, didn't know that I existed and I didn't know that they existed. Right. So I would find, I'd find quite a lot of good records out of that, huh. out of that bin. Okay. And one day I found two pieces of white cardboard held together by two white, salad, uh, two white right, yeah. rubber bands and mm. just a silver CDR with a handwritten word Kasabian mm. on there. And mm. it had processed beats yeah. on it uh -huh. and it just totally blew me away because I thought this is 
oh my god this is like a distillation of everything that I love in about the last 10 years of, of 15 years of, of music of like it's got a little bit of Primal Scream it's got a little bit of Stone Roses and a little bit of Happy Mondays it's yeah. it's and it's fused it all together yeah, later, and, and also I mean the other stuff that was on the CD is there's bits of Prodigy really Prodigy and it was like Prodigy meets rock, like a, a rock band yeah mm. yeah mm. Um, yeah, I mean, they couldn't get arrested. No. Um, and they, it was all done by it. the movement, which was like the, the fans that were yeah. built up, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, and I was one messages. of them. I was, yeah. you know, member number two of something. Of, of the movement. We didn't get played on um, Radio 1 either. No, didn't get they didn't any get any play it. at all. Uh, Enemy hated them. Yeah, everyone hated them. It was. Yeah. It, I was literally just like, I, I thought I was going mad. They sold out two uh, Alexandra Palaces in London, and then everyone thought, ooh, ooh. We better play these. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, was Clubfoot that they started playing. That was the fifth the re- single. Yeah, and that was re-released, wasn't and it? Re-released. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. I remember squaring up to the then head of music at, at XFM, just going, "What is your prop?" After feeding back to him for a year and a half. Well, know, and, and then when they finally did get played by some of the, the those radio stations, Colin Cassidy and yeah, I had it's to go, even worse. I had to go above <laughs> his head. I had to go. I had an an audible and visible argument in the in the production office, and then and he said, "Okay, well, maybe I know. I, I hate them." And I go, "You've got to separate your personal yeah, you feelings out of this." Yeah, what's it good? I, and and um, it was just so. And he goes, "Oh, okay, well, maybe I'll play the next one, which was LSF, Lost Souls Forever." Yeah, and um, that came out duly ignored, ignored completely yeah. ignored. So I just went above his head. To the I love the fact that you know. The, the time when, when I first knew them, they were all living together in this farmhouse in Leicester. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And um, it was so cold that they all slept in the clothes in sleeping bags in the same bed. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> huddled around a candle. And Kasabian is actually Linda Kasabian, yeah. who is Charles Manson's getaway driver. Yeah. Right. Nice lads. <laughs> Trailblazers, Mike Pickering. Process Beats by Kasabian, and we're on Trailblazers with Mike Pickering, um, who uh, who signed Kasabian, and uh, who a them right now. Um, ten, ten glorious years. Yeah, they've done so <laughs> amazing, really, to, to nobody well, uh, getting the, that. The funny thing was, uh, not last year, the year before was actually 10, so it was actually 11 now, I think. But um, their first uh, Glastonbury, there was 10 years... Um, they did the 11 o'clock opening spot. And that's got, right, yeah. We, and that's when we had the movement. And my daughter, who was only about 13 then, um, uh, we said, right, we've got, had all these flags. You remember with the Ultra? Yes. The, and uh, got one. the night before, we went and stuck them outside all the tents on poles. So that, it was <laughs> yes. great. The next morning, there was thousands of people waving these um, Kasabian flags. Yes. It was great. Oh, and then 10 years later... They headlined the pyramid stage, so it was yeah. like they'd, they'd really gone the full circle. Really, really, no, that's just, that's just fantastic. And so, another um, an amazing string to your bow. We we touched on him earlier. Is is Calvin Harris? Yeah. Um, 
another connection because I've got so much love for that man. Yeah. Not only because he said the nicest thing that anyone's ever said about me on Twitter, but I, I actually genuinely love his music. And I, I was, you know, back when you talk about people not giving a toss about an act and you're trying to break them, and mm. but nobody gave a toss right no, at the beginning. Not at about all. With Calvin, and you had those brilliant posters all around London where I was with fly eye yeah the fly eye with those great um, sunglasses and and they didn't even have a a a logo or anything it was just that picture but I knew what it was because I'd been sent the promo and I'd be you know was supporting it Calvin's a a, a wonderful uh, he, he really understands exactly what it takes to be a musician and to be a an artist and he's he's uh, he's better than any uh, marketing department in any record company. He's just got it. He just knows. You and know. and has he always had, had always that? always or right? So did he come up with that? Yeah, that, that, brilliant. Yeah. I thought that that must have been some brilliant. Head the funny of thing is, he actually <laughs> made a pair. Ah. <laughs> he got a pair of sunglasses, and uh, I think he's bubble wrap, and then painted the bits of bubble wrap. You know, so he stuck the the thing over the, yeah. over the where the lens would be, and then put silver paint on the bubble wrap. Brilliant. I think I've got them somewhere. So, <laughs> so in your in your label role, there is is a lot of it is supporting Calvin in what he wants to do, rather than the label going, "Hey, you know." Oh yeah, I mean, listen. There's one massive moment in Calvin's career after the first album was they were talking about dropping him, um, and I. Uh, Sat in front of all the, in front of like the, the bosses and the finance guys, which I don't normally do because I, I kind of got a whiff of this, and uh, went, and luckily, a few days earlier, the, the one of the finance guys had come up to me and went, "This Calvin Harris that you've got, went, yeah." He went, "Do you know he's the um, uh, second highest PPL earner behind Lily Allen this year?" And PPL for, for listeners who don't know is. Uh, you know, for sinks, if you're on an advert or if you're on, you know, I don't know, chocolate bars or yeah. cars or whatever. And uh, I thought, oh, thank God for that. So I went in this meeting and they were like, well, he's only sold, you know, I don't know, 40,000 albums or whatever. And da 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 da. And some marketing person said, yeah, and the last two singles didn't get playlisted at Radio One. You're like, ah. So I said, yeah, but you should look at in the modern world how artists are going. It is PPL earnings. And yeah. luckily, Jed Doty went, why, what are they? And then the finance guy said, well, yeah, I think that's great. Well, you can do another album. And, of course, the next album started with I'm Not Alone, which was a number one smash. Yes. Um, mm. and, and he was off then. When that, I heard that... But, but uh, it was in the balance. In the balance, yeah. In the balance. But that, that's what I think as an A&R man. If you, look, if you only sign things you love and you have that faith and then, you, you know, you put your neck on the line. Yeah. I was saying to him, look, get rid of him, get rid of me, you know. Right, and that second album was him properly hitting his stride. I'm on record as saying that that is, for me, one of the best pop records that's ever been made. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. When I first heard, I'm not alone. Every single track. I went out to his studio at the time, which is in uh, North London, and and, um, he played at me, and I was nearly crying. I was like, "It's just incredible. That's just an incredible smash hit." And you know, he's he was quite sure. He's like, "Oh, really?" It's like, yeah, it's amazing. And I came back and I went to uh, Columbia Records and as um, uh, Sam Potts, who's the <clears throat> radio plugger, and I went, Sam, come in this room here quick. Yeah. Played at him and he just, because Sam's like, a, he does DJ and stuff, and he, he loved Calvin. He just went, oh, my God, that's just huge, you know. It was such a great feeling that yeah. it, it, it kind of 
stood up to the plate and there was there was four big smashes off that how much uh, do the do the demos sort of change based around your input do you find yourself it's good but well it doesn't could, could... it doesn't demo yeah right. so it's work in progress um yeah i mean you know this look with, with any act that i a and r i always say to him i'm here i'm not going to tell you what to do i'm hardly ever going to step in but I've made lots of records and I'm here and um, with it works best with Kasabian and Calvin works a li- it works also with the Ting Tings because I signed them but um, there's times when all of a sudden they'll just say I'm really stuck on this mm. arrangement or something and then you know that, that's, that's because if you're a solo artist it's so difficult and you know Sergio does all the Kasabian stuff so it's the same thing with him I mean, sometimes you need to walk outside it and if you've got someone like me who's got that experience and go well you know cut that bridge there and put that verse yeah, there yeah just fresh ears just isn't it fresh, it's just fresh ears yeah 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 um, but I never go oh you should do this or you should do that no. I, sometimes with Carlo I was like you should sing a bit more because I really love Feel So Close yes <laughs> and, so, and he has got a good voice but he hates his voice so and I have to put my hands up when I heard Bounce which is um, what's her name um, oh uh uh, Kelly's Kelly's yes of course I said oh how much vocals are you not singing any I could see he was crestfallen and I have to hold my hands up and say I was completely wrong at that moment because I wanted him to sing yeah yeah <laughs> and I, I love not not just him singing but he used to say good voice but he used to do really interesting things like there was this one brilliant record on that on that second album it just started oh yeah those interludes and I went what what is that noise that you've got on yeah. there? Because that, that, is, that is definitely not a preset, that noise. He goes, I know that was my voice. I yeah, just, he does. I just I used my voice and then put it through a processor and I made that noise. And that's one of my favourite records on that when he first When I first met him, he, he lived in Dumfries. And I think he, he used to uh, stack the shelves either at M&S or one of the big supermarkets. Yes. And uh, when he was younger, growing up, he's he telling me and his mum's told me that he he, he he kind of put together a computer, his own computer, to do music on. He's a bit of a boffin, right? Really. Like a yeah. self-built Yeah, self-built out of all bits yeah. and stuff like that. So he completely understands Sonic, electronic Sonic. He yeah. just knows the back he end because he's built everything it. everything yeah. about it yeah. he's built it. And, um, yeah, those interludes that he, put, he, he puts on his albums are amazing. Absolutely amazing, yeah. Trailblazers. If I see a light flashing, could this mean that I'm coming home? If I see a man waving, does this mean that I'm not alone? If I see a light flashing, could this mean that I'm coming home? If I see a man waving, does this mean that I'm not alone? Oh, what a brilliant pop record. And he um, yeah. he just, he purloined that sound out of <laughs> trance, which was so huge. And, yeah. the, and this was and this was a, an interesting sort of time for him because he I think he suddenly then realised that, you know, it wasn't being in, a, in the front man of a band, of a big band that mm. was going to be the future for him. Well, we did a gig the at um, the Warehouse Project in Manchester, one of his first ever gigs. I was doing, because I was very involved with the Warehouse Project. And... Um, New Year's Eve on the first ever New Year's Eve that they had at Boddington's um, brewery and he went on at midnight and then I played after and uh, he stood watching me DJing 
I think that was a turning point, actually. He went, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he didn't really know the DJ kind of scenario from then. Yeah, because I saw him in, you know, in, in the band. Uh, well, he hated know, that. He, yeah, he oh, didn't he like it. And, and I, it. I remember him saying to me, off mic sort of thing, I want to be getter. You know, I want to. I want yeah. to do that. Yeah. I want to. Very I, much. I, so. I don't want to be taking a whole band on the no. road and, and paying for all of that. No. I, could, I could just do it myself, and I can be in control of it. Not in a control freaky way, but you know, it was well, very calculated. They mostly are, though, aren't yeah. they? These very successful artists. Number one, I imagine he must have a tremendous work ethic. Yeah, totally. He, he, he's, he's never had a holiday, ever. Right. Wow. And, but there's Not another. Like there's, a, there's, a, there's an artistic parallel with what I was saying earlier about them. Is the Motown thing? Because didn't he start off as like a a soul, like R and B kind of writer? Yeah, he did. and and though the you know that melody that we just heard, he that's came another. out to London once before and and tried that and um, went home with his tail between his legs yeah. back to Dumfries. Yeah, but but, but he was it, very young then, you know. But he's mm. got that sensibility that, that yeah. the Motown writers had the people that you are so beloved it's very, of you it's very cool as well I mean like the latest single when it when I first heard that I was like oh thank god for that because you know the EDM thing is so big in America and it's so mm. different and he lives in America now and it's so different from what we're we're into in Europe yeah and uh, he he has now decided you know that he's going to distance, distance himself as far as he can from all that mm. and he's make, made a record that's Believe it or not, it's actually sold more than the, the the last few big hits. Yeah, sold more than Summer or Blame or any of those. We, so we can't talk about Calvin Harris and sales without mentioning that he beat Michael Jackson. Didn't he did he? with with this like top the, ten hits. The amount of top top five actually top five hits. Yeah, top ten. He had seven or eight on the run. Yeah, just astonishing. Absolutely amazing. Mm. Mm, is that even more? But obviously, that was from one album. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. I've, I've got, so I've got all the time in the world for Calvin. Yeah. I, I went here. I've, I've been in many positions where, you know, he'll be slagged off within earshot, and I won't have it. The only thing I can do is look at him in his underpants on the billboards. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> but he knows that. <laughs> yeah. No other man, you know. What I mean, yeah. I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> so, um, oh, I knew this was going to be one of my favourites, and I knew that well, we were going to want to talk to you a lot longer than we've got um so we've we've got to, to the end of this really and, and we've got to um the fire's going out anyway yeah. the fire's going out you're running out of wood <laughs> um so so it's at this point that i always i ask the same question to uh, to every guest which is that if aliens landed and wanted and they were malevolent and they, they wanted to raise this planet to the ground for whatever reason to make way for a galactic superhighway and they asked for a, a reason not to do that because it's between us and the moon yeah uh, so what would you give them as the as the, the, the tune that would save humanity okay well you know having listened to and loved so many records when I when I when the question was put to me it's got to be the first one that springs to mind and and it's also the record that we used to play as the the encore in the Hacienda every Friday night and that's um, Someday by C.C. Rogers um, just a beautiful beautiful record and beyond that what 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 is it why does it affect well, you so much it, you know it was adapted from a Martin Luther King speech oh. a lot of it part parts of it 
And uh, I just think it's a beautiful, it's Marshall Jefferson's finest moment. Trailblazers, Mike Pickering. So it's our trailblazer, Mike Pickering's One More Tune, the tune to uh, to save humanity. Um, so, Mike, it's been an absolute uh, a pleasure to, to talk no, to I've you. No, I've had a great time. Um, me too. I love talking. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, you'll have to do another one, Mike Pickering Part yeah. 2, won't we? Nothing like a, a sherry around the fire. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess, you know, what, what does the immediate future hold for you? Well, uh I'm really into my DJing at the moment, so I'm playing out quite a lot. Um, I just think, I think a lot of the, the the stuff that's being released at the moment is very. It's almost like it's come full, full circle from yeah. early nineties, late eighties. Oh yeah, Definitely. sorry we didn't have because you love talking so much. We couldn't play the new Green Velvet one. I know, I know Technasia you're, versus we're, Green Velvet. We're both Sugar. I love that <laughs> yes. record. I love that record. Um, so I'm DJing a lot. Um, we've got obviously. Uh, in full flow with Calvin we've got uh, we're just working mm-hmm. we've just got another song ready nearly just need a certain vocalist to vocal it and um, yeah Kasabian album uh, just starting meeting Surge tomorrow send so, in my love yeah will do so um, and I've got a new act Millie Pie who I'm very excited about who are just recording her record so uh, yeah you will continue being a part of the fabric <laughs> of, uh, of great British music. Mike Pickering, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. Yeah, thank you both. Man. Thank you. Deezer Originals. Trailblazers. Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to Mike Pickering for joining us. And it's Danny Rampling next time. Looking forward to that. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.